podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Well, the window is now officially open and teams are actually able to sign players. So I think it's a good time to talk more about some transfer rumors to see what might be going on. What do you say, Tadeba? Hey, not too bad yourself. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing all right. So before we get into the rumors, though, let, let, let's uh, let's talk about the thing that we're both watching at the moment, which is the Women's World Cup. Uh, this is being recorded during the uh, Netherlands-Sweden semifinal game. But I want I want to ask you know some questions about the game that occurred yesterday. Um you know, being that neither one of us on this podcast is English, Tadeo does live in London, but is not English, so I, I don't know what his allegiance was in this particular cup. I am going to ask him a pair of questions about yesterday's game, the first of which, who's more butthurt, Phil Neville or Piers Morgan? Oh, definitely Piers Morgan. With all the chats that he was doing online, I think he's he's going to be feeling it the most. Yeah, I mean, he really, really, really went out on... Uh, on a very, 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 very big limb for his distaste for Megan Rapino, And uh, I've got to say, you know, not just proud because I'm an American and we're going far, but also proud because, uh, you know, you know, uh, the, the American team shut him up. And it's quite nice to see that, too. And I guess the, uh, the next thing to ask is, uh, what do you think of Alex Morgan's celebration, the teacup? Do you think that it's really that disrespectful? Um, I, I personally didn't see it as that disrespectful. I thought maybe it was just a bit of banter, but I, I see people have taken serious offense to it. So I, I just stayed out of that conversation, but I don't think it was intended with as much malice as people have given it. Um, you know what I mean? I think in most situations like that, it's more how you take it than necessarily the intent that was shown from the, from the other person that that's how I, I, I felt it went. My expert belief on this as an American who is also very much in favor of Alex Morgan, apparently also a Liverpool fan, so shout out to Alex Morgan, but, um, is, uh, if you want to, you know, not see her celebrate, keep her out of the goal. <laughs> Fair play, yeah. Yeah, you gotta, you've gotta not, you know, if, if, it's always the teams that get scored against that bitch about the celebration. Well, guess what? Don't get scored against. That's the, that's, that's how that works. Now let's take a minute though to talk about that that particular game because it is a you know it's a World Cup semifinal and uh, one of us gets to gloat and I guess the other one just uh, like what what do you what do you feel about what do you, what do you feel about the England team being in England? Were, were you behind um, them or did you uh, were you more of just a you know an observer? I love tournaments like this where I don't have a team that I, I necessarily haven't. If I say obligation to support, it may sound too bad, but you know what I mean? Where I, I can watch this tournament just as a fan, just enjoying the game, enjoying football. And you know, that old cliche of football is the winner for me, but that's how I feel, especially being, you know, as involved as we are as Liverpool fans, um, throughout a whole season, we rarely get to watch games where we just get to enjoy ourselves. Um, it's all, there's always an agenda. Even when I'm watching other leagues, you know, I'm watching to see a specific player or there's always some sort of intent where this one, it was just purely enjoying the game. I mean, my favorites ended up being Japan because I just loved how well disciplined their team was. So they were like my underdog team going, um, throughout the tournament. So yeah, if, if there's any team I, I, I lent towards, it was Japan actually. I mean, obviously, I have a bias here as the U.S. is is in this. But I think the other team that I really enjoyed watching was Brazil, just because I really wanted to see the end of Marta as a, a, on a competitive stage. Because you have to figure she's probably done after this. And she's been so... Like, she's been really big as far as the women's game. And, like, you know, there, there's been some, you know, superstars, particularly in... Particularly, actually, American women, if you actually think about the Women's World Cup. But Marta is the biggest... Is the, is the you know... the 
the brightest light of them all and has been the best player in the world for quite some time. So it's really nice to see her, you know, get to play in a final World Cup, obviously. And uh, I did like Japan, though. Very fun team to watch, extremely disciplined. And you can see why they've won, you know, why they've, uh, why they've won this tournament in the past, because they have a way of playing that's really, really works for the, the women's game, which, you know, does kind of, uh, I think, it, I think the women's game can get, is really fun given how fast it is and how much, and how much of the game is played in transition. Yeah. And you can see, obviously, I think maybe a lot of people were surprised by how much the game has evolved. So hopefully, um, the best thing to come out of this World Cup is it's brought a lot more fans that will take an interest in, you know, club level of women's football. And then more so trying to get maybe, um, some more players to be excited about, you know, that there are opportunities in the sport for, for women. I know, um, that there must be a few little girls out there that have seen some stars throughout this World Cup that hopefully they look up to and one day want to become later on in the future. Absolutely. Um, I will say this though, if we're talking about games in transition, the game that we're watching at this exact moment has not been that. <laughs> the, uh, the other semifinal, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're just, you know, casually paying attention to it or watching it intently while trying to do a podcast. Um, it has been a tactical, uh, a very tactical affair. Yeah. A lot. This, this seems more like an Italian type of game, like a serial type of game than necessarily uh heart on your sleeve type game we saw yesterday. So maybe if that the roles had been reversed, people would um, appreciate this game more, but because of the roller coaster we went through yesterday, I think, uh, ev- everyone was hoping for another blockbuster. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I suspect that at the end of this game, we're going to see uh, Sweden's coach get up and Scooby-Doo ending. It's Tony Poulos. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, uh, you know, let- let's get into, uh, in- into, you know, talk to transfers. Manchester United have sealed the signing of Aaron Juan Pisaka. And they're rumored to be in for Harry Maguire at a higher price than Liverpool played, paid for Virgil van Dyke. Obviously, we did an entire podcast talking about Manchester United's incredibly flawed strategy. Um, so I don't want to beat the drum too much more on this, but their way forward, are they, are they really setting themselves up for anything except for repeating in sixth place? I, I don't think they are at the moment, but I, I suppose it's a catch 22 for them. Um, Obviously, they want to buy players that they can uh, build a future around. If you look at um, the ages of the Harry Maguires and especially Aaron Wan-Bissaka, um, I think these are signings that could outlive a manager that's likely not to be there um, by the end of you know next season, which is perhaps maybe the the idea that they have coming in uh, to this transfer window is not necessarily buying players that are tailor-made for this specific manager, but that have the attributes to be able to be successful with other managers in the future. Um, I just think just looking them at the signings though at face value, my biggest worry would be, you know, obviously Wan-Bissaka being the one that has been made official. Um, with him, no United player has really improved since Sir Alex Ferguson has left. So if you're bringing in a right back that isn't as good attacking, but you're saying, oh, he can improve on that side of his game. If players aren't improving at the club, then I, I don't see why bringing a young player in hoping he improves is, is really the answer. Um, and then, yeah, the Harry Maguire prize, as, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, I just think they're building up the expectation way too high for him and him in the high line will be hilarious to watch. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. On the face of it, both of them are incredibly solid players. Wampasaka at Crystal Palace last year, uh, potential team of the season type of season that he put together, the thing that kept him out of it was probably both Kyle Walker and Trent Alexander-Arnold. But uh, he he had a really, really good season. Harry Maguire's a good defender in a specific style that no top six team is ever going to play. So... Good luck to, good luck to you, United. Good luck. Good luck to staying in Europe, that is. Moving across the city, the, you know, the team that we're, we're, we're minorly looking up at in the league, a point difference. Manchester City has signed Rodri from Atletico Madrid, who is, um, you know, it's a big money signing. He's a player that's obviously there to secede, uh, Fernandinho. I guess the question is, 
what what is what is he going to bring and do you do you expect him to do do you expect him to basically try to stem those the tides of when Fernandinho goes down injured because that's seemingly when they seem that's seemingly when they struggle and that's also a position that they have nobody else who can play yeah but the interesting thing with Rodri is i think he's more stylistically similar to Gundogan when Gundogan has played that six for City, then necessarily a Fernandinho, you know, uh, loosely um, pigeonholing him as a destroyer. Um, yeah, so it will be interesting to see how that gets implemented to the team. And then I also wonder, with them not necessarily having gone full out for a centre-back yet, you know Pep likes to, you know, tinker with players' positions. Does he then put Fernandinho at centre-back? Or try and try and move him back down, and then have a passer, then have an extra passer on the pitch. I actually suspect that there's that the answer for them could be a back three. Yeah, it could be bringing Fernandinho Walker, because Kyle Walker can play in a back three. He does it for England. He does a decent job at it. You just don't want him as an orthodox center back. Mm. But they they have options in defense, and I, I think that yeah. One of their play, one of their defenders who struggled mightily during the Copa America, Nicolas Odomendi. I can't see how he's going to get regular game time for them ever again because he's just not good. No, he he takes too long to get into form, and I think once he gets into form, you know they're now giving Stones a chance, so he he never gets to to actually maintain the the good form that he builds up. It, it's sort of similar to. You know, the type of things that happen to Lovren every now and then where he gets a niggle. He, he can't play more than six games. Um, so players like that need to be in the team for months on end. And I don't think City can afford to do that, having, you know, Stones and him vying for the same position effectively. Yeah. So I actually want to then stick, though, with uh, Atletico Madrid because obviously they've, they've, let go of Rodri. Apparently, Antoine Griezmann to Barcelona is also, you know, pretty close to being done and announced. They're bringing in Jao Felix to uh, to kind of, with, with the money that they're getting from both Griezmann and uh, Rodri. What do you think of that? Because this guy is, you know, incredible season at Benfica, eighteen years old, and looks like he might be just the next superstar Portuguese talent. Yeah, it, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how he develops. Um, I think the, the thing for them is they, they do, you know, Atletico pride themselves in finding these up and coming stars and then, you know, selling them off at higher prices and then replacing them with new, exciting young stars. So they've got a model that, you know, has worked pretty well for them throughout, you know, the best part of the, uh, 2000s I would say uh, maybe a bit uh, closer to the 2010s and upwards but um, I think you know bringing in Felix for the amount that they brought him in you know time will tell whether or not it, it it was worth it but what he brings is he's one of those talents in world football that undoubtedly his ceiling is you know Ballon d'Or ceiling levels of, of in terms of his potential where he could reach it's just now whether or not you can untap that and i suppose you know um opposite to what united have where they don't improve players um atletico have a coach that's very good at improving players and making players shine in in in, a, in his system so he's going to have a good coach to try and unlock all that potential so Look, it, it, it's obviously a, a risk, but I think because of such the high ceiling that he has and the potential to be, he's going to be fighting for the Ballon d'Or if he reaches his potential. So you can see where their thinking is in just paying the buyout price, you, you know, paying out the 113 odd million and then, um, backing themselves to be able to unlock that, that talent. Yeah. I think, I think I'm with you there. It's basically the type of thing where, if you're going to get rid of a player like a Griezmann, who is, you know, Griezmann's probably is a top 10 forward in the world who's still currently in his prime. You can maybe even argue top five. Uh, whatever you want to say. Antoine Griezmann is an incredibly good footballer. They got him for next to nothing. They're, they're, they're going to sell him for a lot. Rodri, same thing. They've got him for next to nothing, and they're going to sell him for a lot. 
they're good at profiting. But I guess the question is, with Felix, you're you're getting him at 19. You got to assume at some point the transfer moder- the market can't keep going just up, up, up without any sort of relent because at some point there's that that money is just not there in the game. Is this the type of move at 126 million that Atletico, you know, is it too out of character for what they normally do to actually be effective? Like, are they actually changing how they operate as a club to do this? Now, I get it's still a young player that they want to develop, but he's priced like he's more expensive than I think. He's the fifth most expensive player ever. That's yeah. that's what I was trying to go with this. It's that that is ludicrous money. But I I, I think the the Probably, that, and I can imagine Benfica were just, you know, going to hold a bidding war on his services regardless. Oh yeah, definitely, and and I think they would have expected a lot of teams to to be in that bidding war. But I think the thing that people maybe that that teams are starting to look at now is trying to trying to find that next superstar and seeing that you know I could have a Jao Felix for you know, the next seven, eight, nine years and still be able to sell him before he hits his prime. So effectively, you know, if you're getting, and I think he signed a seven-year contract with them or something ridiculous like that. So if you have him for seven years and he, you know, and he continues to develop, he's going to pay back that money over those seven years and, um, if you add, you know, the potential transfer fee that you're going to sell him for as well. So let's say even if they sell him for 70 million the next time he goes, you know, that 40 million shortfall, so to speak, has been made up by, you know, maybe the trophies that he's won them or the sponsorship that he's brought to the club, you know, because these youngsters, you know, are seeming to become the faces of these, um, Especially, you know, like the Nikes and Adidas, the football boot makers, they they're now trying to create brands of players. We can see it with Mbappe, where he's already becoming a brand on his own, and that's, you know, that's um, come as a result of the Ronaldos and the the Messis, where football players are now not just football players, but they're a branding image as well. Yes, and speaking of branding images, and this kind of all fits in very neatly into this big money roulette. Neymar to PSG for Coutinho, both of whom have built brands that are at the moment quite iffy, very not good, not very good for Nike, who has the rights to both of them and forced the transfer of one of them last year. Thank you, Nike. But I guess the question is, what do you make of this now? If you're if you're looking at Barcelona with the concept of you obviously still have Messi, who is still an incredibly good player, although. There's there's a closing question that I need to ask you about Messi, and I, that'll that'll be, that'll be the close, right? Because I did think one of those two. Uh, what do you think about the concept of Neymar, Suarez, Messi, and Griezmann all in an attacking unit? I I think that could be quite interesting. Um, obviously, with with Neymar's record over the last couple of seasons, in terms of appearances, the support staff is going to be really crucial. So, you know, that whether or not, you know, a Suarez is going to allow someone to come in and take a spot just by the nature of who Luis Suarez is, I think he, he might be feeling pretty confident that he can bully anyone out of that, you know, out of taking his position. Um, and then you've still got, you know, the Usman Dembele's, um, whether he stays or goes, if he does stay, who might become more crucial than you'd think on paper at the start of the season. As I said, considering how, how little football Neymar has played, um, considering the fees that he's garnered and the, you know, the, the, the profile that he has as a footballer on the pitch. But in terms of on paper, I think that's quite a dangerous strike force. Um, you've got the flair, you've got creativity and you've got bags of goals. Um, and it, I think it takes a lot of creativity out of the midfield, like the expectation of creativity out of the midfield, which will, I think, help Barcelona at the moment because they don't necessarily have the most creative midfield at the moment, I think. I guess th- there's there's two ways I could think about this, right? One of which is that's four men who constantly need the ball and there's only one ball. 
right? It's, it's, it's like the classic NBA paradox, which is you don't want too many scorers on one team because in the end, there's only one basketball. Like, it's still, it's, it's a lot of touches that they need to get to those guys. Now, I guess the other question is, you can make it work in one way, which is, where do you play each one of them, right? Is the best position for them actually going to be with Messi playing as the 10, right? Because that's where you'd assume that he'd play in that situation, is he'd play, you know, the 10 or a second striker, and you'd imagine Suarez up through the middle, leaving probably Griezmann and Neymar wide. But would it not maybe work better if you actually played Griezmann or Neymar as the 10 and use Messi cutting in like he, you know, and, and try to prolong his career by not making him your main ball progressor? I don't know, just a thought. Yeah, but I, and I think um, that's probably going to be the biggest headache for, for Barcelona is how do you, you know, use Messi to his highest potential? Where do you move him around on the pitch? Um, if you look at, you know, his biggest rival for, throughout his career, Cristiano Ronaldo, um, as early as 26, 27, they already had a plan for him to move into, um, the striker position and, um, you would have to look back through the archives, but some of the earlier podcasts that I, I started doing on here, um, maybe not the transfer one, but some of the other ones, um, I, I did mention, you know, the plan for Ronaldo and his camp was Ronaldo was going to eventually become a striker the older he got just to try and, you know, prolong his career. Now, I've, I've never really heard those type of, um, talks coming from like a name. I mean, I mean, from Messi's camp. So, yeah, I think that's going to be interesting to see how the older Messi gets, what position he's going to be playing or, or, you know, the involvement that he has in the team. Not to say that, you know, he's still not going to be one of the best players in the world because it seems like he still is at the moment and it doesn't seem like he's going to be stopping anytime soon. Um, but yeah, there definitely was a plan for Ronaldo. I, I, I don't know if there has been as detailed a plan for transition with Messi. Um, going forward yeah I, I agree with that because it's effectively they just use him as their entire attack this season with Suarez just trying to get on the end of things and finishing him now Suarez is the one who's actually slowing down so he's the one who I think probably makes the most way for these two like I, I wouldn't be shocked if next season was wasn't Louis it was Louis Suarez's final season at Barcelona no part of that would remotely surprise me but moving on to uh the, the Premier League, uh, or back to the Premier League. Uh, the first huge signing for a Premier League team in this summer window, because the Pulisic signing was, uh, you know, in, in January for Chelsea, and I don't consider uh, a 21 year old right back a huge signing. Um, Tenge and Dombele going to Spurs. Uh, I think it's an incredibly good signing for Spurs. Uh, he, he addresses an area of need, which is a midfielder who can kind of do everything and re- fills the hole that was left with Moussa Dembele as far as someone to relieve, you know, to basically break other teams' presses. But he's just an all-around great player. And if you're a Spurs supporter, you'd be extremely excited to see what he's going to do in the league, wouldn't you? Yeah. And uh, as you said, it was a position that they needed to address. Um, I think even before Moussa Dembele left, um, when, when he seemed to openly say that he couldn't, you know, play, uh, you know, two games in a week and, and play at that competitive level for long periods of time. And, and he showed his desires to try and move to a slower league, you know, like China. Um, then, even then, Spurs were already looking at, at players that they could try and bring in to replace him. Um, so yeah, it's been a long journey for Spurs in terms of trying to find that right player to come and sort of gain control of that midfield, a player that can eventually, I, I don't know if he can quite do it yet, but eventually be able to boss a midfield on his own. Um, I think he certainly has the potential to do something like that. And I'll be interested just to go watch him play live because, um, Musa Dembele was undoubtedly one of my favorite players to watch live um i've I've mentioned it times before um he just exuded uh, confidence and respect from just everyone on the pitch and it seems like dombele has that same profile 
So I, I'm, I'm curious to see if he can garner that from the Spurs, Spurs players and how early he can try and garner something like that. So yeah, so I, all you can say is well done to Spurs. I, I am a bit jealous because he's a player that I really, really like, but I never thought Liverpool were interest. Well, not to say that they weren't interested in a player like him, but that would be going for a player of his profile this window. So fair play to, to Spurs for going out and actually, you know, spending the money to get him in because it, it was quite a big fee for, for a player that maybe not many people know. Yeah, I think it's the first time Spurs have really kind of signed a ready-made superstar. The only reason he's just not a superstar yet is just because he plays, you know, he played in Lyon, which is, you know, for lack of a better term, it's a farmer's league. Like, Lyon mm. is, uh, Lyon's a decent side. PSG is very good. And what else really is there in France? Not a, not a whole ton. Um, like Lille's okay every few seasons. Uh, you know, that's really all I can, you know, Marseille every so often, Monaco every so often. But other than that, it's, it's usually a, not a particularly deep league. So a guy like Ndombele dominated that league, but nobody really noticed it because nobody who watches Olympic Lyon regularly, I don't. They're some great players, but I don't. Um, moving on to, uh, Leicester City, who have, uh, well, let's just actually just start with the fact that the club that's being, taken apart here Newcastle what do you make of them losing Rafa Benitez who is apparently going to China yeah (laughs) yeah that'll be interesting to see how he does that and it'll be interesting to see if his family moves there because weren't they still staying in Liverpool I I think his family is still in Liverpool yeah so um it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic works out um I think it's a massive loss for Newcastle um, I think, and also I, it, it just got to that point where Rafa couldn't take the BS from, um, Mike Ashley anymore. Uh, there were countless transfer windows where Rafa was clearly promised something that was, wasn't delivered. So I think he just decided, you know, as honorable as Rafa is that, you know, I'll see out my contract, but I'm not staying beyond that, which I think was very on. He could have, Rafa could have left and gone to many other really more lucrative and more exciting jobs than than Newcastle. No disrespect to them, but considering the position they were in and the the, the profile of Rafa Benitez. But he, he stayed there. He really, really loved the fan base. He, you know, loved the, the city of Newcastle. I think there were quite a few similarities between Newcastle and Liverpool that he fell in love with. Um, so he was really trying to do something special there and once again, you know, as was the case at Liverpool, he found himself in a position where he wasn't being given all the tools to really take the club to where he felt he could take the club. And that, I think that's the biggest shame is that there's so much potential for Newcastle to really become a big club, but their owner just seems to be holding them back for so long. Um, and the move to China, it's a random one, but hey, if, if he's getting a good payday, you, you can't really blame him, especially with the sacrifice he's made over the last couple of years. Oh, I have to 100% agree with basically everything you said. And apparently adding insult to injury, Rafa only apparently found out that he was being released from his contract when it was came across Sky Sports. So Mike Ashley, a, a, a generally repugnant person in my, in my estimation, and the estimation of probably Newcastle United's entire supporters' trust, um, you know, showing his true colors there by not at least tell, giving the manager knowledge of the fact that, yeah, we're, le- we're letting you go. So, you know, that's not exactly the, a guy who I particularly enjoy. But Newcastle are actually now rumored to be uh, also being taken for Iosi Perez from, to uh, Leicester City. You have to figure with Newcastle only really, you know, not having a ton of... You know, backing and whoever they're going to, whoever that's going to be there, uh, once they settle their management situation. Do you think that this, they're just going to get completely asset stripped? And do you think that there's a possibility that we see a team that might get relegated? I would argue they're probably the favorites to get relegated at the moment, purely because of the morale that they're going to be going into the season with. And it's going to take a hell of an effort for the manager to, try and rejuvenate the squad and, and, and get them motivated again to go through a, a grueling Premier League season. You know, at, at least with, with Rafa, you could see the players believed in his system and believed that he really could 
keep them up so they were willing to work for him. I don't know who they bring in that, that could garner that sort of confidence as well. Um, so it, it's going to be an uphill battle for them, unfortunately. Um, one of my good friends is a Newcastle fan, actually. So he, he was absolutely gutted when, when Rafa, he, he sort of, you know, it's like the club has lost hope. And, and that's the worst thing you can, you can lose when, when you're in a Premier League is, is hope. Now, I guess the other question then comes to uh, what do you think a player like Perez does for uh, for Leicester? Do you think that he is there to kind of... Do you, do you think that that's a sign that someone like... T- that either Tielemans or Madison will probably be on the move and, they're, and Leicester's just trying to get ahead to replace them? Or do you think that this is basically Leicester just have the ability to buy this one player to improve their squad? Um, I, I could actually see where they do have some money because, you know, own, rich rich ownership group or a rich owner, and uh, they did, you know, win the league and have some Champions League money, and they haven't spent huge in previous years, so I could see this actually just being one where they have the money. But I wonder what you think. Yeah, and and they've been very good at the selling. Uh, you know, the the whole uh, transfer and scouting system at Leicester has been set up really, really well. So they, they, as you said, they're they're financially stable club, so they they can afford to. You know, turn down, for example, 70 odd million bids for a Maguire or, you know, asking City to pay premium price for a Mares. Um, so I think as long as, and, and it would obviously need to be looked at or if it's ever disclosed, I think as long as Brendan Rodgers isn't in charge of the transfer side of things, as long as he's just focused on the coaching side, then they're going to be, they're going to be fine. Um, in that department, it's just I think when Rogers takes too much on, then then the the wheels come off the bus a little bit. Uh, in terms of Perez himself, I think it was largely influenced by the the fact that Ian Nacho hasn't really kicked on. So you, Leicester are always looking for someone to eventually you know take over from Vardy or at least play second fiddle for the time being, um, whilst Vardy is still playing well and. Iannaccio hasn't stepped up, so I think um, they were looking for someone else to to take those reins. Yeah, you could tell that. You tell me again that Kellen Iannaccio has not stepped up. This is a <laughs> sitter and good city. And no, I mean I'm actually not bitter about it anymore because uh, six times. Um, <laughs> but uh, moving along into the the Premier League, the other player rumor that I wanted to discuss was uh, Marco Arnautovic, um, and. If anybody can see our agenda, which nobody can, because I've only <laughs> actually emailed it to you, um, I did spell his last name as A R N O U T with the O U T cap- capitalized because apparently he wants to go to China. Um, he is thirty years old. This is a chance for a big payday for him. Uh, I, I I I can see why the player wants to do it. I can also see why West Ham supporters are pretty sick of this entire thing. I don't know. What do you think about it? Yeah. I- Look, they've had well over a season, I think, now to have scouted a replacement for him. Um, I, I get how important he's been for them, and especially when, you know, a motivated Anadovic is a really, really dangerous player to have in the Premier League because he, he turns up for them week in, week out when he really is motivated and keen to play. So I can see someone being reluctant to let him go, but as as has been said, it's been well over a year now that they've known he's wanted to leave. And if you haven't found not even just one replace, if you haven't got a list of at least minimum five players that could come in and replace him, you know, maybe not one specific player to replace him, but two to replace what he was giving you in terms of, you know, goals and creativity. But, at, you know, there has to be someone that, that, that they've found that they can happily, you know, let Anatovich go and bring in it. I think it would just be absolutely negligent if the reason they're still keeping him is because they haven't found anyone all this time. Yeah, and I think there's maybe just something that needs to be said for the fact that West Ham United might just be poor at handling outgoing situations with marquee players because this is the second time their best player has wanted to go for over a season. And they've done, and they've done nothing to facilitate it. You, you can't be having players who don't want to be around your team. It's toxic. First Paillet, Paillet, and now this, like, just 
get them out. Get the, figure figure out the plan. Get them out. If you just need six months to get them out, do that. But holding them there for longer than possible, all it's going to do is just disrupt your entire team. And for West Ham, that's the thing they should avoid because there's a lot to like about what's going on there. They've got some good players, and Manuel Pellegrini's doing a really good job. So you don't really want to see this type of thing slow a team down. Um, you know, now that said, if this was happening at Manchester City, I'd be all for it. So uh, you know. It, it maybe it's just a, a case of because West Ham aren't our, our direct rivals. I could feel some sympathy. Speaking of Liverpool, um, there's a rumor that's popped up today. Divock Origi to Real Betis. Uh, this is one where I think it'd be bittersweet if he actually went because of the season, the second half of the season he's just had. But if you're, if you're Divock Origi, what's it, what's in your head? What decision are you making? I think, for yeah, it, it's a difficult one, and it's it's one he's going to have to make, obviously. But I think, from my perspective, you know that Klopp, Klopp doesn't rotate our front three. Um, it, it's pretty evident throughout the season that when he does rotate, it's it's out of like basically pure necessity where he he has to rotate. So you know, if you're Divock Origi coming off the season that you did come off. You know, everything was bouncing your way. You probably would have hoped to have played a, a, a bit more. Um, I know he played a really big role, uh, in terms of the, the, the importance of the goals that he scored, but maybe minutes wise, he might have wanted to play a bit more. So if he wants to play more football, I don't think that's going to happen at Liverpool. I think, um, either it's going to be, you know, Klopp, con- uh, Continuing not to rotate the front three as, as much as maybe the physicians might want or something like that. And then alternatively, Divock Origi at 24, you know, this is the age where you need to start looking at how much minutes you're getting. Otherwise you're going to start stagnating in your development. So maybe, you know, that's something that he needs to consider whether or not it's real Batiste up. They, they have shown interest in the past in him. Um, I know last year they, they inquired about him, but they showed no appetite to be able to pay anywhere near the, the price that Liverpool are quoting. I think we wanted about 25 going up to 30 million for him last season and Batiste were looking, you know, between 10 and 15. So it, it, it wasn't even a, a conversation starter because they were so far apart. So I, I don't know what this season would have, you know, made them want to increase the price that much more. Um, you know, you can, from a Liverpool perspective, we look at his goals, you know, being very emotional, being supporters. But if you look as a neutral, um, there's not much that he's really done to increase his price. Um, but obviously from a Liverpool's perspective, uh, with the emotion, you would think, oh, you know, the price has gone way more this season I really don't think it's gone as high as an emotional Liverpool fan would would think it's gone up so yeah maybe it's because also Liverpool were interested in Junior Firpo so maybe people are trying to put two and two together like they've done with Bruno Fernandes where Camacho was going to sporting so let's try and link Bruno Fernandes as much as we can to Liverpool maybe this is now the reverse with Firpo and Origi yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm a Rigi, the decision I'm making is the one that gets me the most playing time because reality, being a cult hero is fine, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't progress your career and it doesn't. I mean, it does progress your career, but it doesn't. It doesn't earn you your next contract someplace, right? Liverpool aren't going to give Liverpool aren't going to give Divock Origi 150 thousand a week, and he's not going to get the opportunities to develop himself into being that kind of player if he's not playing, right? Training is great and all. Training with a great manager will make you better. But at some point, it actually just has to come through game time. So if I'm him, I'm, I'm making that decision. Now, selfishly, I'd prefer he not because I also very much, I, I, have, I have a lot of time for him. I like him. And I think he has a phenomenally good attitude, which is the type of thing that I don't want to take out of Liverpool's dressing room. But I also think that the, the dressing room will take whoever takes his place and, and, and lift them as well. Now, yeah. and I think also just to touch on, you know, the, the attitude you're speaking of. If you look at Spurs, for example, how many years have they spent trying to find a number two to Harry Kane? Someone that's willing to sit on the bench and can come on and, and have an impact. 
Um, they've tried, you know, going with the young players like the Janssens. They've tried going old with Lorente. So that could become an issue for us as well. So I think, I think that's a good point that you raised with having a player, if he is, um, happy with the minutes he's getting or maybe, you know, managers promising more minutes next season. He's a player that's integrated into the squad. That's a very important thing, I think. I think it's, and that's the part where I think that, that that's the part I don't want to lose, right? Because you don't know how a new personality is going to come into the squad and behave. Now, I would expect that we do our homework and making sure that the players are not just the right fit, uh, you know, for what they can do from a skill and attribute perspective and physical perspective. But I'd also hope that we're trying to also worry about, you know, the players' mentality, temperament, and their, and whether or not, you know, they're a cultural fit for what we're trying to do, which I think for the most part, we've been very good at because we don't have situations where we have unhappy players who, derail the team which is something that other top six teams have had problems with right if you look at the rest of the top six city don't really have it because once again manager is a strong enough personality to fix that um other city don't have that united definitely have problematic cultural issues we discussed ad nauseum arsenal have it in particular if you want to look at kind of just ozil and the conversation around him he seems to be whether or not it's fair and i'm not going to pass that judgment here it seems to be a bit toxic Chelsea, you know, basically is the vet the Joker falls into in the first Batman movie. And Spurs have been pretty good, once again, because of Pochettino. The thing that Spurs have is occasionally, you know, Kane's, Kane occasionally puts himself ahead of the team. I get why he does, because he thinks that he's, you know, going to make the team more likely to win. But it, it hasn't, you know, it, it's worked out as to where Kane sometimes has been more of a, a stumbling block than a help. Nonetheless, you can see what's where the managers are strong and where the, where the investment in building a culture, you know, really works out for, really works out whereas not having a culture just destroys a team. And those are things that you really want to recruit for. But speaking of which, Liverpool have also part of our culture assigning young players and hoping that they come through. We have signed Sepp Vandenberg and Pent from, uh, P.K. Zwolle in uh, the Dutch League. There's an entire AI Pro podcast about this. I'm not even going to pretend to know a 17-year-old Dutch player because I just don't. And then Harvey uh, Harvey Elliott from Fulham, the youngest uh, Premier League player in history. Once again, I, I don't watch Fulham's reserves, so I'm not even going to pretend to know anything about him. But what do you think these kind? I- I'm not going to ask that or assume that you do, but I'm asked, what do you think about these kinds of signings where we're looking for these you know, 16 and 17-year-olds that we know we might not see make real strides into the first team until for a two, three, four years. I think the biggest important thing with signing players um, like this is that not necessarily whether or not they make our first team, but how much value they they bring to the club financially. Um, you look, for example, I think the perfect example for this. Um, if you want to look at these two signing, or I don't know if we've, we've signed Elliot or it's still. It's still rumored. up in the, it's still rumored. Yeah. Like apparently he said bye to his Fulham teammates and he's, you know, apparent, apparently we're the ones in for him, but yeah, but, but nothing, in, in, nothing from our side remotely coming close to confirming it or even saying we're interested. Okay. No, that's fine. Um, but in terms of these signings, the best example I can give is Marco Gruich where we signed him and it was, you know, the same type of hype that um, like a, a SEP is coming in with, where this kid looks like he's going to be, you know, a future star, um, very composed on the ball, obviously a, a midfielder and a defender, but, you know, similar confidence traits where they were bossing their age groups um, growing up. And, if you look at Gruich, he's already paid off his transfer fee through all the loans that we've sent him out on. And we know that Liverpool are very particular with their loans. Um, unlike un- other clubs, we put in penalties into our contracts for loans where if the player isn't played, um, the club has to pay us more. And, you know, I think it's like a 75% playing time or whatever, depending on, on each player, how much playing time we want for them. So, um, Gruich has already paid off his transfer fee. And then now, because he's done well on loan, it's only uphill from here in that either we sell him, which means we're going to make a profit from him because of all the loan transfers and the eventual transfer fee, or 
he's going to become so good that he forces his way into the team. And then now you've got a, oh, Netherlands have just scored a brilliant goal. Um, sorry. You're 10 and seconds they, ahead of me. Oh, no. Sorry. I forgot to, to say spoiler alert for you. But, oh, that's um, a brilliant goal. Yeah. Um, but also for Gruich, like, yeah, if he, if he becomes that good that he can force himself into the team, then that's a bonus for us as well. Um, and you could see people this transfer window speaking of, oh, should he be loaned? Should he come back to the team? You know, will he ever play for Liverpool? For me, that's not a concern because I don't think that's what he was specifically bought for. Um, and it seems similar with Sepp and potentially Elliot is if they end up playing for the team, that's great. That, that means they've really done well with their development. If they don't, we're still probably going to make a profit from them, which continues the trend of Liverpool making really, really good um, sales. Um, and you can trace that all the way through to the Jordan Ives, the Solankis, even the Danny Ings. Liverpool have been concentrating very much on signing these young players that might not necessarily become stars for our team, but at least have potential to make money for the club. And that helps us financially. Um, I know we won't talk about it this, this podcast, but if you look at, for example, Arsenal's um, finances at the moment, their, their academy has kind of stagnated and their, their potential to sell youngsters at good prices has really dwindled. Um, if you look at how much they sold, like the Nabries, for example, for, they could have gotten way more for him. And that ends up, you know, affecting the financial side of the game too. So yeah, um, if the, if, what, so I think I'll just summarize and ending it in that if Sepp and potentially Elliot come in and they make the first team, that's excellent news. It means they've done really well. But if they don't, it probably means we sent them out on loan and they've paid back their transfer fee, especially Sepp coming in at, at, you know, less than three or four million. He can make that, that up over like two loans. And then you're just looking to get a really big or a decent transfer fee from him. Yeah, I'm I'm with you because basically, if you look at almost every other sport too, like say I would guess probably really the NFL, right? Because of just the nature of of that sport. But I'm talking American sports as in this as well as also the you know world world football. A lot of how you have to operate is basically on the concept of buying opportunity, and if it doesn't work out, packaging it for something that's more well-made, right? So you have to give yourself as many opportunities to hit on something or, or fund the, the purchase of the, of, of the hit, right? Like a big thing in American baseball is because teams have such deep farm systems that are basically like academies at all different levels, right? So you have like triple A, which would be like the under 23s, even though, you know, it's not age restricted. Yes. Uh, it is, you use, you know, prospects occasionally to trade to a team that's just looking to, you know, probably give up on their season and retool for the future. And you'll trade away for their best player, who's someone who can help you win now. And having a lot of those younger players that you can start to just, you know, improve, develop, sell off, that really, really, really gives us more opportunities to just hit and go out and buy players like Virgil van Dyke and Allison Becker. Because that's not just the Philippe Coutinho uh, transfer fee that's lining our pockets. Like you said, it is things like Solanke, Kevin Stewart, um, you know, Connor Randall, Jordan Ibe. Although I don't think we got anything for Randall. Now, the only, the only youth player we've sold in the past 10 to 15 years that's going to, that, that's, that I'm, that I, that I'm, re- that just really bugs me is the one that we sold for the biggest fee because I really wish we still had Raheem Sterling. Yeah. I think that Jurgen Klopp would have done wonders with him, but that's just because he's a fantastic footballer. Uh, but, you know, I, I pretty much agree with you that, you know, that's just how we have to operate. That's how, the, even if we had all the money in the world, that's how I'd still want us to operate. Right. And, and we're close to having all the money in the world. We have very, very sizable financial muscle right now, but that's how, that's one of those things that I'd still want us to do regardless of, of the amount of money we make for, from everything else, because just, it's a good way to keep and developing a line of talent that's going to be that's going to be sustaining you for a decade. And Both. remember, we we can't, especially with young academy players. If you look at how many times have we had, you know, the next Gerard or the next, 
you know, the Danny Pacheco, like Jordan Rossiter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so getting attached to the young players, I, I don't think is, is the way to go. Um, like we said, just looking more from a financial side of it is, is the best way to look at it. And you still have guys like, you know, the Ryan Kents, the Harry Wilsons who could still potentially get a really, really good fee for us. And that then, as you said, fuels us by, you know, if you add three or four of those sales, it could end up in one really, really good starter coming in. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not really too attached to, to the younger players, but once again, if they end up becoming like a trend where they force their way into the team, that's perfect. Uh, Ryan Brewster will be looking to do the same next season. Yep. And now let's get to the first team. So been awfully quiet. Are mm-hmm. you nervous? <laughs> I think. It's it's a yes or no for me. Um, I think the the biggest problem with Liverpool at the moment is that they're two extremes. It seems like on the one end, it's the extreme of oh my god, we haven't signed anyone. You know what are we doing? We only ever sign players when we sell big. You know, and then on the other end, it's uh, you know the talk of we don't need to sign anyone. You know, we've got the likes of Lalana coming back. And I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, in my opinion, and I think I wrote this on Twitter or something, if we had won the Champions League last year uh, against Madrid, I don't think the Fabinho signing would have been announced as early as it did. Um, our club is very, very strategic when it comes to media narrative and when and the timing of when things are done, even player contracts renewals um when we announce them if people start paying attention to those you can see they're very strategically placed so i'm not yet worried because we're a club that knows that we needed to improve um i don't think you go and almost sign a fakir and then all of a sudden decide actually we don't need you know there's no longer that gap in our in our team because that gap still exists um whether you like it or not, it does. So clearly, you know, you're hopefully, you know, you're looking to address that at some point in time. Um, so yeah, I, I think that work has been done and work is done year round, which also I think becomes blown out of proportion when it comes to transfer windows is people think that teams only start picking up the phone, you know, or start the, you know, the, the, the transfer decisions on July the 1st. This is a year-long thing that happens throughout the year. It's just during the the transfer windows is when you make the money, but the business is done throughout the year. So I'm I'm not worried at the moment. I'm 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 pretty confident that we're gonna sign replacements. And that confidence is purely based on the fact that we do need to sign replacements considering the the amount of tournaments we're gonna be playing in next season we need more first team players that are going to come into the first team and the quality doesn't drop, especially, you know, in that front line. Um, and then also you have to look at, for example, if you lose two games in the Premier League with a standard city or setting, it probably means you're not, you're not going to win it. You know what I mean? And at the start of the season, you can imagine, you know, our whole front line is either involved in AFCON or in copper, and they, it looks like they might all go pretty far in those tournaments. So I don't think we can really rely too heavily on them at the start of the season. And if we do, it means they're going to get injured later on in the season, probably. So then you would think there's going to be some sort of um, forward line player coming in there. So yeah, I'm, I'm not too worried at the moment. You know, um, we'll see maybe. You can ask me again closer to August um, if, if I'm starting to get nervous. But preseason hasn't even started yet. It starts this weekend. So I, th- I think we're still in a good position. And then obviously, just lastly, that whole, I think, I don't know, maybe I can swing this on you. Is there anyone that frustrates you more between the people that are saying, you know, we haven't signed anyone yet versus the people who are claiming we can rely on like the Lalanas are a new signing? I think the people who are saying that we're not signing anybody already, already, they're, they're more aligned towards what I would call actual criticism, right? Cause you do want guys in there roughly at the start of preseason. 
mm-hmm. especially because we've seen how long it takes Klopp to trust certain players. Although I will say he tr- he trusted Salah and Mane faster than he's trusted any of the midfielders. Perhaps it's just the midfield where the the, the instructions are extremely intricate because everybody else has kind of come straight into the team who he signed, except for maybe Robertson, but that's also because, once again, difference between Hull expectations at Hull and the expectations at Liverpool are quite quite drastic. But, I mean, Salah was in from the start. Mane was in from the start. So maybe um, maybe my, my concern is a little bit less founded about wanting just someone in there because the, the preseason started. But there hasn't been a lot of big dominoes to fall in the transfer market period. So why would I single us out as being inactive when I know that, A, I trust what Klopp and Edwards are doing, right? They've shown that they know what they're doing. So I do trust that they're going to bring players in. I do trust that they know what we need. I think that they know what we need better than I do. But I also get a little bit nervous about the fact that it hasn't happened yet. Now, the people who are saying something like Adam Lallana, right? That's just, that's wishful thinking. They're not going to tell Lallana that he sucks, right? Nor does he suck, right? I complain about the guy a lot. He's still a significantly better footballer. He's still a good footballer. I think he probably is a bit long in the tooth, right? Because he's 31 coming. He's coming to the age 31. He's the age 31 season. He's had two unhealthy seasons in a row. And those types of things don't tend to get better as you get older, right? I'm 37. I played yesterday, and I feel like I'm going to die. So (laughs) I, I can imagine that these guys, obviously, in much better shape than me, Still have those feelings because the intensity with which they're playing is also is, is things that we like. We'll never experience playing a sport at the intensity of Premier League football. Yeah, and we don't know what that does to your body, but I can assume that it really hurts. Considering Adam Lallana, a professional who has always you know had a reasonably good level of fitness. I mean, I guess the knock for him at Southampton was that he never completed ninety minutes, but still. That's a lot of guys who don't. He still, it's partly because of the fact that he runs himself into the ground when he plays. We could debate the efficacy of his running all day long. But, uh, you know, it's the type of thing where I can only imagine that his body's not going to get better, right? He's not going to get less broken as he gets older. So those people, the people who are saying, like, you know, we have Lamana coming back, it's like a new signing. I, I think that they should just be, I don't even think it's worth arguing with them. They should be dismissed because... They're not looking at, you know, the realm of, you know, data driven evidence that we have about Lolana's availability and efficacy over the last two seasons. Don't expect it to be better for, don't expect it to get better magically at the age of 31, right? It, it, it doesn't work like that. Now. Yeah. But I think also, just lastly, considering how poorly we've done in the domestic cups to, to claim that our squad doesn't need improvement, I think is a bit unfair. Um, Absolutely. Add, you know what I mean? If, if we were going far in the domestic, but we've shown in the domestic cups that we don't have the squad quality, you know, good enough to challenge on all fronts. And I think probably that's maybe the next step for Liverpool is seeing how to build a squad that can challenge on all fronts. And that's probably, you know, the, the most difficult job in, in world football to, to challenge, you know, on, on all fronts. And then also lastly, I think people need to be aware that there are deals that can be done and then the announcement is only made later on. Um, for example, you know, if a player is playing in AFCON and they don't want that announcement to distract him from, you know, f- from what's happening at AFCON. Um, do you get what I mean? Where, yeah. So, so there, there are potential deals that could have been done. Um, we're just holding out of when we announce them. And once again, I reiterate from earlier, Liverpool is very, very, they play very close attention to when things are, are done. Yep. So I guess the, the, there's two, there's two final questions and they're both pretty, pretty quick order. So the three attacking players Liverpool has been linked with are Liverpool been linked with are Bruno Fernandez, Usman Dembele, Nicolas Pepe. Of those three, which one do you want? It would have to be Nicolas Pepe. Uh, it would have, it would have originally been Usman Dembele, but I think because of the fact that he's had so many hamstring injuries, um, and I think Michael Owen is probably the best example is that once you get hamstring injuries, they're going to happen again and again and again. So it's something that's going to follow him for the rest of his career. And my fear would be, you know, how much would that hamper him when he becomes 26, 27? Um, 
if it weren't for the hamstring injuries or if I could guarantee that he would be fit, it would definitely be Usman Dembele. But for, you know, practically thinking, I think Nicolas Pepe comes in and really helps that forward line. The reason I don't pick Bruno Fernandes, although I think we need a player like him, is because I think we we need a player that can rotate with that that allows our front three to rate, rotate more than we necessarily need uh, an attacking midfielder who sometimes, you know, can be found wanting when it comes to the defensive side of things. And because of the workload that our front three have gone through over the last two seasons with World Cups and, you know, their now domestic international tournaments that they're playing, they need to be rotated. And the only way clubs rotating them is if a player of the similar quality, like, you know, when we had Coutinho in there, comes in and Klopp can trust him to keep the, the quality levels the same. Yeah, for me, it's probably Dembele, because I just trust in the raw talent. Um, yeah. Because he, he's absolutely incredible. And I trust that, you know, the, the criticism of, of him is that he's immature, but I think Klopp actually has the has the ability to kind of bond with players at any age. The only player we've really seen Klopp have like a big attitude issue with was Mamadou Sako, and that's something that Sako's kind of had at more than one club. So that one might just be, you know, the personality fit for Mamadou Sako at a at a club with a strong manager, you know, might not be there for him, right? So, but and we have a recent example because remember when Shakiri was coming in. There were so many people warning that, oh, he's going to have a bad attitude, and he he seems to be fine. So yeah, he I think, was. I think you're right with uh, Klopp being being the the bad boy whisperer. I think I think that he can. I think that he can get through to Dembele, and I think that he'll. You know, I think I think that Dembele will, you know, develop that little bit of personal that that bit of personal growth that he needs to, you know, as a footballer. Right. I'm not saying any other way because that would be bizarre and paternalistic. But just as long as you know. Getting him to be a, a a footballer of the quality that he can be, I think Klopp is the manager who can unlock that. If, if, and also, secondly, if Dembele wants to sit and play video games all night, uh, there there are a million worse things that I think that he can can happen to a person. That's true. Yeah, but I have now now I'm going to leave you with the the question I had thought of for the end, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a doozy. Did Liverpool break Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez? <laughs> well, to be fair, I think Argentina broke Lionel Messi for internationals before we even touched him. Uh, he can't seem to catch a break with international football. Um, oh man, I, we probably did, and I wouldn't be surprised. You know, going back to that Madrid final, if we—I mean, the the final against Madrid. Sorry. If we had beaten, beaten Madrid then, I wouldn't be surprised if we had broken, if we would have broken some of their players then too, because both of those players, Messi and, and Suarez, their team is coming to the end of a cycle. Uh, similarly, as we saw, especially when it came through this season, Real Madrid were coming to the end of their cycle. So whether or not they have, you know, the patience to go through another rebuilding phase, Will be interesting to see. Yeah, I think I have to agree with you on international football breaking Leo Messi. I don't know <laughs> if you saw it's probably it's probably on very very late for you, so I'm not sure if you watched it. But I, I did watch the Brazil Argentina game last night. And, yeah, I caught the highlights. Oh man, he he caught a really like they just don't know how to play together. I, I don't understand how they have can have so many good attacking players who just don't know how to play together. Like so. Paulo Dybala, right? For instance, doesn't know. Yeah. Tends to play. Tended to play poorly this year with Ronaldo. Plays poorly with Messi. There's got to be. Is there something about Dybala where it's just he needs to be the man in order to work? The answer is probably yes, right? He probably needs to see more of the ball and be more of a focal point. And playing with the two of them just doesn't work like that because they're going to be the focal point. But then, what happened to some of these other guys? Like what happened to Anel Di Maria? Why can't Sergio, why is Aguero so ineffective at the international level? What is it about this combination of talents that just doesn't work? I don't get it. I never will. Um, thankfully, I'm not, I, I have no tie to the country of Argentina. I was there once. Nice place. So it doesn't bother me that that's the, uh, that that's what happens. But, uh, 
I, I do kind of feel for Messi because it is a bad feeling for a player of his caliber to uh, to 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 endure such to be let down so much, really, at the international level. And the thing for me is, if you look at some of the international, you know, play, obviously, you know, the biggest stat for most people is just goals and assists. But if you look at the creative play that he offers them going forward, he's actually, he, he does a really good job for them. And then, you know, like a Higuain will miss a penalty or, you know, something that's kind of out of his control. Um, and then also I think people focus too much on Argentina's attack when I think their defense is the one that's causing them real problems. If you look at Brazil, for example, at the moment, they only need to score one or two goals because they've got Allison at the back and he's a monster at the moment, you know? Um, so yeah, I think if, if Argentina had an, an amazing goalkeeper, I wouldn't be surprised if they had won a, a tournament or two at least by now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically just that's that's what's killing them: inability to stop anybody. It's what happens yeah. when Ode, Nicolas Otamendi and Juan Foyth <laughs> are your two best center backs, right? They're both two guys, two two ba- two backups in the Premier League are their two best center backs. Like, I don't know. Maybe Argentine football should uh, teach people how to defend a little bit better. All right, but that that brings us to the end of this week's pod. Um, we'll be back to you guys next week with some more exciting transfer rumors. Hopefully there's something actually involving Liverpool to talk about. I'd prefer to see a lean than a rumor, but we'll take what we can get. Network.